Welcome, everyone, to the Absolute Worldy Football Podcast. Absolute Worldy Football Podcast, coming to you, listeners, from the same place we recorded uh, our first four episodes of season one, which may uh, explain a certain uh, aural difference, Kyle. <laughs> I would say that your house is headquarters, right? and this is the football cave. The football cave, the echoey football cave. Yeah. Echoing of, of all the worldy chat that we had here about the World Cup. I, I don't miss the World Cup. Other people seem to miss it loads. I've already f- sort of forgotten that it happened. I was having a conversation with a friend about it and he was still like, it was the best summer of football I've ever had. And there were so many great games. There were so many great games and so many great memories. How, how often do you think you talk about football? Uh, I WhatsApp about football most, I have to say. Uh, as in just like just a random thought here and there or like long conversations? Oh, no, like consistent ponderings about certain things with my brother's... Uh, in our WhatsApp group with a friend who lives uh, in the Middle East within, in another group. See, because it, it's interesting to me because I was thinking about how many of our listeners don't really like football. Uh-huh. I was thinking about uh, Amy Fleming last week, Gaelic uh, correspondent for the Absolute Worldy Football Podcast. Who wasn't thinking about Amy Fleming I last mean, week? I mean, I'm pretty much constantly thinking about Amy Fleming, both this week, last week, and other weeks. <laughs> um, but, like, I was thinking, like, she doesn't talk about football at all, ever, unless she's talking to us. And I was thinking, how many, how much of my time and life is spent talking about a game? Or is it just a game? Is it more a way of life? <laughs> I think if you didn't spend so much time with me, you would talk about football less. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Have you got other football, like, chat pals? Yeah, well, because I grew up in North London, a lot of my friends are Arsenal fans. Don't want to talk to them, do you? Well, I do, because it's really interesting talking to people who, for whom, like... I think there's an interesting thing with football because you basically, you either get used to mediocrity of the team you support or you get used to incredible success. And then if from the mediocrity arises great success, it's the most exciting thing that's ever happened to you in your entire life and you can't stop talking about it. Or if from the great success that you've had as a football team uh, suddenly arises a period of mediocrity, it's the worst thing that's ever happened to you and you can't stop talking about it. So I've quite enjoyed uh, over the last few years Arsenal fans complaining about Arsene Wenger and saying all these things. It's, it makes for an interesting change of uh, heart and note from the people around me. I also think that we've had male influences in our lives setting that, that sort of uh, conversational narrative of talking about the football. So my dad, who has never listened to an episode of this podcast and probably never will. Good on your dad. Yeah, thanks dad. Uh, he... Why, sorry, why not? Uh, technological illiteracy. Laziness. My dad... Uh, absolute worldy listeners. Um, my dad. Uh, he, oh, there's the uh, Joel's dad chatbot going off. Well, he doesn't oh, have a chatbot. He's, he barely knows how to use it's it. It's just silence, except <laughs> not in this room because it's really echoey. So it'll just be the echo of the last thing we said. <laughs> my dad has a BlackBerry. Ah, <laughs> oh, the noise of the like yeah, the clicking the clicky, oh. when he's when he's emailing. It, it's like well, because he types with two fingers as well at a keyboard. So when he's emailing off his BlackBerry, it's watching. Clicky thumbs, pressing the individual letters, looking really close. It's it's like what it's like what we were all like on our Nokia's in the late. Oh god, yeah. I mean, even like even the phones now, that the sound is set to set to remind you of what it oh, used to be like to have I that clicky. I turned the sound off on my phone. I yeah, don't of course. Want that. But I mean, I've had many dinners with your dad where it's like, right, how are you both? Good. Right now, let's talk about football. Yeah. And my it, dad doesn't even ask you how you are. It's just straight, straight in with football. Straight That's in not football, fair, yeah. Dad. You do. You do. You well, your do. dad does listen, so you've got to be careful what you say here. You do talk, ask me how I am, and then we do talk about football. My dad mostly moans about football. Oh, 
I mean, my dad supports Tottenham Hotspur. Right. And for listeners who don't know, they're going through a sustained period of being better than they have been for most of the last Absolutely. 30 years. Absolutely, yes, they are. But what happens when you're a football fan, as you were saying earlier, you get used to that and you still find things to... I don't think my dad is ever happy with how Tottenham are playing, ever. And um, my dad is an Everton fan, uh, which, you know, talk about... And, you know, and he's also been an Everton fan since the late 50s. So he's seen them hit extraordinary highs of winning the league a few times and being one of the best teams in the country to being probably the bastion of mediocrity. The team who've been in the Premier League the longest with the worst history of uh, high finishes. It was them and Villa and then Villa dropped out. Yeah. I mean, it's just... I I suppose the reason I asked you about how much time you talk about football is it's interesting to me to think how much time I either spend being really happy and excited about something which I have no control over or being really bloody miserable about it. And there's never really somewhere in between. I, you, I think as I've got slightly older, I care a bit less, like a bit less emotionally deeply. It's still, like, I'm still obsessed and fixated with like squads and, yeah. and, and form and things yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, 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 but yeah. I, don't, I don't take it to heart. You don't? I don't take it. Okay, I do. So maybe I do. I think about it, but I don't take it personally. And that is that. I think that's the difference of, as you were saying, people that listen to this pod that don't fixate over football or follow a team. They don't understand that disconnect. Like they don't. The emotion. They're taking it personally. The like the the people who you didn't talk to your dad on a Saturday afternoon because that you knew that he'd be in a mood until the Sunday because yeah. his team lost. Yeah. Like. It's easy to see how people who like football that much are probably a bit damaged. Yeah. Oh, my dad will, will, will if I talk to him on a Saturday afternoon after Everton played, the amount of players he's got problems with, and he mispronounces all the foreign players' names, and I think he does it intentionally to wind me up. I think he does it intentionally. He's a very well-learned man. Yeah, you know Gerard Delefeu, who yeah. now plays for Watford, ex of, Spanish. Bar- ex of Barcelona and, and Everton, he calls him Doofaloo. And I, I correct him every time. And I genuinely think at this point, he now only does it just to hear me go, Delafeo, every single time. I think that that is going to be a habit that continues into his uh, older age, <laughs> just to wind you up. Start... <laughs> How's your friend Keely? <laughs> Kyle. Yes, that's what I said. <laughs> he knows my name. I'm sure he does. What do our, non... <laughs> what do our non-football fan listeners, is there like a comparative thing that people get as passionate about? Strictly? Strictly, yeah, maybe. It used to be X Factor. No one seems to care about that anymore. I feel like Strictly is treated in the same way as football. Bake Off? Yeah, but are, are people... Pa- like, right, I, I hold my hands up and say I didn't watch the semi-final. This is being recorded on a Wednesday, the 24th of October. Um, and I didn't watch uh, last night's Bake Off semi-final. And I, I don't watch it ever. Oh, I watch... I'm, I'm a religious viewer of Bake Off. But if Raul got, vote, got kicked off... Or Rahul, I don't actually know how... They seem to not know how to pronounce his name. It's not important. What is, what's this guy about? Oh, he's, he cries about food a lot and he's got no self-confidence. And he just constantly says, oh, I'm terrible and I've got, I'm, gonna get, I'm going this week. I'm going. And he should have gone last week, but he didn't. But if he's gone, if he went last night, I will feel upset. But not in the same way that I do about football. It just doesn't feel the same. I'm going to propose another uh, televisual... Um, obsession that people might feel similarly that they do about football but as in they can't help themselves they yeah. have to watch they know they shouldn't Towie and Made in Chelsea yeah, but do people like if someone from Towie I don't know I, I, they're, they're, now you're adventuring into areas that I don't watch but like I don't watch them but my, you know my fiance 
I, it's the same thing. Like I know if, if she comes in, I've got the football on. I should probably pause it. It's a hard, it's a wretch for me to do it, but I'll do it. Yeah. So she she comes in and the laptop goes down. Yeah. And like you know, far from thinking, oh my god, she's contacting people and she's you know having an affair. I think Towie. <laughs> I just know it because she's she's ashamed to watch it when she, if I'm going to be in the vicinity. She might just be watching porn. No, she's watching she's watching <laughs> Towie or the Kardashians. And she but loves like, them. Yeah, but she. Do- what I'm driving at here is, I I don't believe that if right. So say you're a massive, say you're massively into celebrity culture, and perhaps some of our listeners are. If something, I don't know. If Kim Kardashian, so she said something. Oh, I didn't read the article. I just flipped past the the headline. It said something like Kim Kardashian apologizes after body shaming tweet. D- do people get like emotionally involved in that? Because if my football team lose, I am. I genuinely wish I wasn't, but especially if I'm there, I am miserable for like a good couple of hours. Like it's hard for me to like not let it rile me up and get to me and like feel like uh, it's changed my mood. I guess that's the difference. It's other forms of entertainment that people opt into. It's because they get the entertainment value, the, the fix of a buzz of something, whether it's just sitting eating their dinner and having a bit of escapism. Yeah. Football is rarely escapism because again after it's over you're thrust back into the idea that they've let you down or how all their deficiencies or you obsess over what they did well that they probably didn't do well the week before like it there's a definitely a negative slant to that absolutely in the last two weeks i have watched or no that better better tale uh, i live with an arsenal fan who is also a listener hi friend um and he uh has watched on repeat the two most recent examples of brilliant Arsenal goals again and again and again. And I'm telling you, listeners, if you ever want a definition of a team worldy, you should watch Aaron Ramsey's goal for Arsenal against Fulham and uh, Aubameyang's goal for Arsenal against Leicester on repeat. They are the very definition of a team having a worldy moment. I think we might have an Arsenal-based uh, episode very soon. Will we, Kyle? With Maybe. A, with a special Arsenal guest? I hope so. Well, I'll be looking forward to that. Um, absolutely. I mean, I think this is a good point to reach out to you, our listeners. Send us in your your particular fixations like Joel's housemate. Maybe you're obsessing over a recent goal. Maybe you're just obsessing over someone's lack of performing well. We want to hear all of those. But also, to our listeners who don't you know, necessarily obsess over football apart from our podcast... Send us in your obsessions. What is it that you would equate in your life to us football fans? Hashtag what's your obsession at Worldy Podcast. You can't hashtag a question. Can you not? No. Hashtag this is my obsession at Worldy Podcast. Hashtag Worldy Obsessions at Worldy Podcast. That's much better. Your understanding of social media is vastly, vastly better than that. And that's why our our followers have gone up none. Please spread the word, guys. We need more followers. Let's have a break. Let's have a break. And in the meantime, you listeners, like, share and subscribe to the Absolute Worldy Podcast. If you want to. We're casual about it. Totally casual. We don't go on about it every week. See you in a bit. Everyone's talking about the football. Do you want to talk with me about yeah. And we're back with this week's Classic Worldy. Classic. I mean, if only we had a sting. Classic worldy. Oh my god, I'm going to record that later and make you do make, turn it into a sting. Only if we can have like crackling noises, like it's on an old wireless. Ladies and gentlemen, you're tuned in to this week's classic worldy. Live from BBC Alexander Palace. This week's classic worldy with Kyle Ross and Joe Samuels. 
Okay. Um, so, <laughs> Joel, do you know... That was really well planned. <laughs> do you know Jose Mourinho? I have heard of... I, I bet that 95% of people have heard of Jose Mourinho. Describe him in three words. Uh, grumpy. <laughs> uh, oh, that's a force unto himself. But that would, that's, uh, force, that's three words. Force unto himself. There you go. Interesting. Uh, force unto himself. Forget grumpy. So before the international break, yes. um, with the UEFA Nations League, Manchester United had a crunch game against Newcastle United at Old Trafford. Everyone was saying, if they don't win this game, this could be Mourinho's last game in charge of Manchester United. Define crunch game. I, I don't know why I said crunch. It's, a, it's, t- no, it's that's right. A, that's, a classic, it's no, like, that's a classic football term. I'm everything just, crunches down to this moment. In the absence of a guest this week, Carl, I'm, I'm going to try and be like... Oh, layman. Layman terms. I mean, I can't, I mean, obviously a layman as well. I can't explain the word I a used. crunch. It's like, you know, this game is the most important game for a while. Yes. They were 2-0 down... At half time. Manchester United were? Yep. At Old Trafford. The crowd were beside themselves. In the theatre of dreams. Rafa Benitez, the old adversary of Jose Mourinho leading Newcastle, must have been rubbing his hands with glee. 45 minutes later, <laughs> Just... they'd won 3-2 with a last minute winner from Manchester United's incredibly expensive um, attacker, Sanchez, scoring in injury time, 3-2 United. They won. Mourinho survived. Excellent. He survived the crunch. He did, but then he uh, did his own little bit of um, force unto himself uh, handiwork, shall we say, walking towards his um, tunnel, raising his uh, little finger in a gesture whilst saying in Portuguese the words Fodos filos de puta to the the BT Sport cameras. Right. It translates as fuck off, sons of bitches. Wow. Um, now this comment was yeah it was directed down the lens of BT Sports camera and uh, many viewers picked up on the manager's rant uh, he was charged for this outburst and faced a touchline ban for Manchester United's trip to Chelsea this weekend just gone but in the end he was actually free to sit pitch side a statement from the FA the Football Association read it is alleged that his, this language at the end of the fixture as captured by the broadcast footage was abusive and or insulting and or improper do you know about touchline bans Joel? I'm I'm aware of touchline bans uh, for our listeners who aren't. That is when a manager uh, crosses the football association in some way. It might be something they've said after a game. might be something they've done during a game. My favourite touchline ban uh, was when Alan Pardew, currently out of work uh, manager. I can't remember who he was managing. Perhaps it was Newcastle and he headbutted... David Myler. David Myler, then of Hull. It was either Newcastle or West Brom. Wow. Uh, yeah, well, uh, that was my favourite touchline ban of all time, is when uh, uh, he was banned from sitting in the dugout where the manager sits for the next however many games Well, they, get, they can get one game, two game, three game, five game. Um, it's either for foul and abusive language to the referees or officials, or to a camera, as with Mourinho, or to the opposition. Um, you can criticise the performance or the decision of the referee and his team, all the governing bodies of the league, so the Premier League or the Football Association, the FA, um, for any physical altercations or acts of violence, i.e. Alan Pardew, or for bringing the game into disrepute through unsporting tactics. Ooh, such nice. as throwing a game, um, telling your players to get booked, to miss games, all these sorts of things which are technically cheating. Yes. Or at least, well, what other word would you use for that? Uh, disrepute is quite good. Unsportsmanlike. Unsportsmanlike. Yeah. So, um, so what, well, how many games has Mourinho been banned from being in the dugout? Well, he seems to have avoided uh, the ban for now. 
Oh, right. Um, so they banned him and then rescinded the ban instantaneously. As in, I think that it's been, there's an appeals process. So right. basically, if you appeal, he had until until Friday, last Friday to appeal, and the appeal, the club appealed, and therefore you, as with all sort of legality, you push back the actual time that the ban will come in. Right. But this is far from being Mourinho's first touchline ban, or even stadium ban. Which is the extreme version where you get banned from being anywhere near the premises. In some ways, it is a shame that he got to sit and watch a Chelsea game uh, from his normal position as a manager. Because over the years, Jose Mourinho has had some ingenious ways of dealing with bans. Oh, colour me excited. This is excellent stuff. So I'm quickly going to go through a history of Jose Mourinho's bans <laughs> uh, with his different clubs. I'm going to start at Porto, his first managerial, well, it's actually not his first, but his first big managerial job, 2002-2004. During a 4-1 win versus Lazio in the UEFA Cup semi-final, Jose is banned for preventing a Lazio player, Lucas Castroman, from taking a quick set piece <laughs> when his Porto players were out of position. How did he do that? Do you know? Uh, physically stopped him he, he from taking... He physically stopped the player from taking... Whether he... I mean, in the... You know, going through the archives of 2003, Joel, yeah, I yeah, couldn't yeah. exactly Sean find the photo. Sorry. But I, either he held the ball or the player. I mean, wow. Brilliant. Okay, good. Uh, moving forward to Inter Milan. His spell at Inter Milan in 2008 and 2010, between 2008 and 2010. Uh, he had many fines and touchline bans. Uh, but his most famous one was his handcuffs gesture. Handcuffs Which gesture. he got a three-game ban for. So he was already fuming days before the match after which he gave the handcuffs gesture. He said in a uh, press interview before the game on the Friday, I don't stick my head in the sand. I know there is only one team in Italy that has a penalty area 25 metres long. Uh, he was ref- referring a penalty awarded to Juventus the week before that was outside of the box quite wow. substantially. That's a great quote, isn't it? It's um, just gibberish, really. So after giving his handcuffs gesture after a game where they were reduced to nine men through two red cards against Sampdoria, <laughs> uh, his translator said that what he meant was, you can take me away, arrest me, but my team is strong and we will win anyway, even oh, if we are reduced I mean, to I read that into the handcuff gesture. I didn't need a translator. Yeah. Also, I like the fact that he's got a translator for his gestures. Just, the, <laughs> just like the politicising of his actions. Jose Mourinho is famous for what, I mean, what people tend to claim as taking the heat and the pressure off his players yeah. by making himself a spectacle. I mean, he's still doing it. He's still doing it. Um, so after that incident with the handcuffs, uh, there was a, an article written by La Repubblica newspaper in Italy that said, many hoped that Jose would bring some maturity and culture to our football. <laughs> but instead, we're going backwards to the Borgias. <laughs> backwards to the Borgias. It's Borgias. such a great image of him, like, with a ruff hiding in, like, a dark corridor. That's so... That's... About to whisper in the ear of a pope. That's so extreme. Jump forward to Spain, his, uh, his managerial time at Real Madrid between 2010-2013. He poked assistant manager of Barcelona, Tito Villanova, in the eye. What? And he received a five-game touchline ban. He poked another human... Bi- right, I mean, just to go back to our, our pre-ramble, as it were, in the intro, and I was talking about passion and obsession. There is no logical reason to poke another human being in the eye. There's just none. Um, also, I think, uh, just in case we're in danger, listener, of, of thinking, making you think we're talking about a player on the pitch, we're talking about a man whose job it is to stand on the peripheries of a pitch and go, no, no need to go near anyone else. 
Yeah, why? You bark instructions, maybe you put your arm around your own player. How and when and why are you poking other people in the eye? When do you get the opportunity? That's extraordinary. Right. Um, so he, uh, so his spokesperson for Madrid told El Mundo that newspaper, Jose will not ask for forgiveness. He firmly believes that he was defending the interests of Real Madrid. By poking another human being in the eye. Yeah. Also, the second time in his career that he's had someone translating his actions. I think that... I actually think that he's a, a multilingual person. I, th- I think this is more that it, he's not available for comment or they, they do it through the club's channels. Yeah, yeah. No, I know. I'm just saying he's, he's, it's not like they're translating his words. <laughs> I'm sure that he wrote that down and get, just get, oh, I've got to say this now. <laughs> it's the worst job in football. Or like he, t- like he just wrote down a, like, fuck you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He gave it onto a piece of paper. I mean, also, it's like, I, I, I just imagined in my head then some cl- all clubs having someone to translate people's actions. Like when Suarez bites someone. Yeah, Luis uh, was just showing his his literal distaste for the aggressions of the Italian defender. Luis's toothache was so strong that he had to release it onto some sort of hard material. In this case, it happened to be the player, but it was completely by chance. Anyway, back to Mourinho. So that 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 moment, that kind of pivotal moment of poking someone in the eye, was was not out of nowhere. He'd already been um, making gestures at the Barcelona players from from the sidelines uh, and accusing um, the Barcelona ball boys of time-wasting. Excellent. Uh, He also was making derogatory remarks about Villanova. So... That was that was a culmination of his time in Madrid. But even before then, when he first came, um, he also was banned for five matches for alleging that referees anyway for favoured Barcelona because they had a fixture pile up and Barcelona didn't. Right. Um, he also received a two-match ban for telling players to get booked against Ajax in the Champions League. But this week's classic worldie, Joel, comes from his stadium ban whilst Chelsea manager in his first stint at Chelsea in 2004-2007. <laughs> Settle down for this, Joel, because this is classic. I am settling in. So he was handed a two-game touchline ban in 2005, um, which covered both legs of a Champions League quarterfinal with Bayern Munich, which Chelsea eventually emerged victorious. So he was being punished because, in the round before, uh, indiscretions against Barcelona, uh, the Blues lost the first leg 2-1 in Barcelona, and Mourinho alleged that the Barcelona manager, Frank Rijkaard, had influenced the second half. So you can see this habit he has with Barcelona in particular. Um, uh, Chelsea striker Didi Dogra was sent off, and the, um, so Mourinho alleged that Rijkaard visited at halftime the referee's, referee's room, to have words, which right. is not allowed. Okay. Um, the, re- the referee was a man called Anders Frisk, who was one of the top referees in Europe at the time. So uh, they actually went on to beat Barcelona over two legs. They beat them th- uh, 3-1 in the second leg. I think they scored three goals in the opening 20 minutes at Stamford Bridge. Okay. Uh, but Frisk actually, due to this sort of accusation, was forced to retire because of death threats he received from all over the world, probably many from Chelsea fans. Oh, good. There's, again, another another re- spicy rejoinder to my football is very passionate sport. So um, a senior UEFA official after this round also uh, branded Mourinho an enemy of football. <laughs> <laughs> an enemy of a, of a... You can't be an enemy of a concept. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's another good three-way, three-word sum-up of Jose. Enemy of football. Enemy of football. I think he'd like that. Yeah. Because in an ironic sense, he'd be like, well, yeah, I'm the bad boy. Yeah, it's me against football. Yeah. Um, So, yes, the the ban was given for his comments about Rijkaard bringing the game into disrepute. So, they took this ban into the next round, the quarterfinals against Bayern Munich. Right. 
So, Mourinho was nowhere to be seen. He was banned. Uh, but it was noticed that Chelsea's fitness coach, a man called Rui Faria, was wearing an ill-fitting woolly hat. Oh my God. And was regularly scratching his ear. It led to suspicions that Jose Mourinho, strictly forbidden from communicating with his staff, that's part of the ban, you're not allowed to communicate with anyone, Yeah. Uh, was feeding Faria information through an earpiece. Oh my God. Meanwhile, goalkeeping coach Silvi- Silvino Luro was spotted making regular trips to the dressing room. <laughs> Returning, carrying pieces of paper, oh. which were then distributed to coaching staff. So what might have been on that paper? Maybe it was, I don't know, toilet roll? I mean, I'm guessing he was just going to the dressing room. It basically, they, he was, he decided during the game it was the perfect time to give everyone their secret Santa. <laughs> so he was nipping back to the dressing room. Guys, you know that game, you know that parlor game we've been playing? Uh, on, on the coach let's play it right now yeah, I'm going to write down what he said I'm going to fold it over yeah. and you said what she said oh my said. god they were playing consequences <laughs> so uh, um, sort of journalists were quick to sort of notice that it seemed that those visits back and forth seemed to coincide with Chelsea making substitutions oh that's that's that, but that is just a coincidence right Kyle um, however Joel <laughs> these allegations were trumped by rumours of Mourinho hiding in a laundry basket. <laughs> yes! What do you mean? Had you heard this before? Yes. But I've never heard this I before. Have, I have heard of it. So I, I, I'd obviously heard of the earpiece story. It's, it's quite a famous story of Mourinho's antics. But then reading into it, hiding in a laundry basket. So he was... It, but the, 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 what's the detail here? Was, okay. he in the, was he in the changing room? So there was an unverified story suggesting that the Portuguese boss hid in the basket used for transporting the club's kit around Stamford Bridge, the stadium. Uh, it was claimed that he used it to hide from UEFA officials but was able to hop out long enough to deliver pre-match and half-time team talks. The tale went that 10 minutes before full-time, when he knew that he had to disappear completely and not be in the dressing room, uh, he, he got back in the... Uh, and these, like... These laundry baskets, I'm not talking, you know, the sort of ones that you and I have in our house. We're talking like industrial size things on wheels. Obviously. Um, So. (laughs) I didn't think it was just. (laughs) Just over his head. (laughs) Jose? Who is Jose? (laughs) I am just a man with a laundry basket for a head. Um, so he got so apparently he was wheeled out by oh, uh, by laundry staff superb. into the nearby sort of um, Stamford Bridge leisure centre across the way um, before anyone could know any the wiser. But the, basically, the agreement was that he 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 was not allowed to be in the stadium, but he could be in this leisure centre sort of complex part of Chelsea's um, sort of buildings, which is across I mean, the way. If you have to have an agreement from where you can watch your own bloody football team play, I mean, do you want to know where the story came from, John? Yeah. The Daily Mail and the Times. Oh no, you've ruined it now. No, I don't believe it. Well, they did. They didn't. They didn't release this information for two years. Right. They okay. sat. They sat on it for two years, uh, and then they came out in April two thousand and seven and said that back in two thousand and five, he'd arrived early at the ground, watched the game in a TV in a dressing room. So he'd been there the whole time, but Super. not been seen. Okay. Um, and they did. He delivered the pre-match and the halftime talks. Um, the piece was called. Undercover Jose. Undercover Jose. And it was written by Matt Lawton. And this is the article. This is, this is snippets of it. Right. Gaining access to the dressing room was simple enough. He arrived shortly after lunch, even though it would mean waiting more than four hours for his players to join him. In the afternoon, you haven't got anyone around, said one source. He just walked in. <laughs> said one source. In the afternoon, you haven't got anyone around. Yeah, this is I mean... peak, peak secrets here <laughs> of Stamford Bridge's hierarchy. Yeah. Um, 
It meant Mourinho was in place to give his pre-match team talk an all-important half-time address and watch the game on the television that is in the dressing room. Communication with the bench, according to sources, was achieved by using an earpiece that was worn by Faria and either a mobile phone or a radio. Or a radio. Could be a radio. Who knows? Another source said, It was so obvious to keep playing with your ear like that. <laughs> it depends what network you're on and what room you're in, but you can get mobile reception in the I dressing room. I love the fact that this source is just so obviously Jose Mourinho. <laughs> I also... I also love how in 2005 there was like, yeah, but there was no reception. <laughs> it's so, it's, it dates the story so amazingly. Yeah, it's great. It's like, but it, it's impossible because no one had reception, reception. in that space. It was no, underground. Of course. Um, the method of escape was planned in advance. It was decided Mourinho would leave about 10 minutes before the end of the game. A kit skip a was kit identified skip. as the perfect vehicle for the job. That's and after a... squeezing into it and covering himself in kit, the lid was closed and Mourinho was wheeled to the Stamford Bridge Health Club where it was claimed he had spent the entire evening. Oh, God. After being spotted going in there early in the day. So click, like they'd planned this. Oh, He'd God. been like, well, I'll walk in there and everyone will see me walk in, but then I'll escape probably from a kit. But... In the kit skip. Also, if the lid was on, why would you have to cover yourself with clothes it's just nonsense just in case hang on what's in that kit skip <laughs> uh, nothing definitely not a Chelsea manager well let me just have a look oh he's in there this is quite a heavy skip it's just nonsense it's so stupid um, okay, so UEFA officials were too busy watching the game to realise what was going on, and so for that, and so for that matter, were members of the Bayern Munich contingent. Yeah, because sure. they normally send people ahead to go and check the skip. <laughs> yeah. Also, I guess like you could. I know we're dramatising it. If you've got a, a, a touchline ban or a stadium ban, you're not supposed to be in the dressing room. Who checks? Yeah, no, sure. Literally, he could just be in there and just be in the back and yeah, be yeah, like, yeah. hiding in a shower or something. But, so it's easily done. But he is nevertheless... I mean, also the, the idea that he he's such a control freak that he... I mean, keep going. Sorry. This is my favourite bit, I think. Right, go on. Mourinho was so thrilled by his antics that the next day he joked openly about his journey in the skip with players and staff at the training ground and vowed to defy you over in the second leg. What? Megalomania. So he was also so. Trans, so basically, it transpires he's also banned from the, the touchline for the Bayern Munich leg in right. Germany. Uh, so gaining access to the dressing room on that occasion was impossible. But he decided to get around that. It has now emerged by having a loudspeaker taken in so he could talk to his players. What? He took his seat in the stands before fleeing because of the close, close attention of the television crew, choosing instead to watch the game back at the team hotel. According to a source, there was a massive speaker in the dressing room at Munich's Olympic Stadium. Jose was at the hotel, added the source. Obviously, Roman Abramovich's security sorted it all out. Oh, yeah, of course. When, you're, when, you're, when your football team is owned by a Russian oligarch, they just sort it all out. <laughs> Imagine being like uh, on the door at the Bayern Munich uh, Stadium. Hello. Hello, we're here to, uh, we have to clean Chelsea. <laughs> That's the Russian accent. Chat um, why do you need to... Ch- it's already clean. We have our own staff for that. Well, we, uh, we, 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 we know that the players like to have certain sweet treats left into their shoes. <laughs> Okay, in you go. Why have you got all that equipment for 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 putting in a loudspeaker? No, no, we just have this with us. We're going to another place. That was, I mean, that was borderline offensive, but I enjoyed it. So both papers also both quoted Chelsea's response. Great, which was. The situation is very clear. Both matches were controlled by UEFA and they were more than satisfied on both nights that their ruling was intact, hence the statements that were issued by UEFA at the time and subsequently. The only reason to publish this so close to a big match is to serve an agenda that is intended to undermine our team. So close to a big match? Yes, yeah, so two years later, remember? Yeah. Chelsea are about to play a Champions League quarterfinal against Liverpool. 
Ah, right. Okay. So yeah, this yeah. just go. This is all pays into Mourinho's big "everyone's against me" narrative, and Chelsea obviously allowed that to also yeah, be great part of their statement. So it is interesting. It took two years to break. Either that's because they completely made it up, or they thought no one would believe them. I mean, I just think it's it. it, it, it no question, it's uh, Mourinho told them at the time. <laughs> I just have to say, like, do papers still have so- sources without names? In three different parts of an article. Yeah, and it's all the same source. It's all Jose Mourinho. <laughs> so, ten years later, Joel. Yes. Uh, when he was back at Chelsea in a, st- a second stint, he had another stadium ban. Uh, and it was a, for a match against Stoke. And in the, in the press conference before the game, Mark Hughes' boss of Stoke said, um, I suppose the FA can check if he arrives with the team. Is he in the laundry basket or something? <laughs> Uh, Mourinho was allowed to respond to this and he said I don't discuss I told you with Mourinho funny stories are over funny stories are definitely over with Mourinho no question um, so I know I said it might have been a shame for him to be at pitch side at the Chelsea game considering what he might have been up to if he wasn't yeah. but actually what he got up to when he was was absolutely brilliant Do you I want to know what happened at the game uh, please tell me now Carl what happened this weekend with Jose Mourinho at the Chelsea game Chelsea went up 1-0 Man United, with 20 minutes to go, were 2-1 up at, at Stamford Bridge. Winning at Would the home of the Chelsea. First, team, first time that Mourinho, I think, had won at Stamford Bridge as an opposing manager. Yes. Uh, at least with an English team. Um, and then suddenly, six minutes into injury time, Ross Barkley closes for Chelsea. The crowd goes wild. Uh, and the first thing that happened is that the assistant uh, coach of Chelsea, a man called uh, Iani... Um, goaded Mourinho basically when they first of all when the players went in he walked, sort of walked past him to be like and then in Italian and then did it again on the way back great just standing basically in front of him like just kind the of most taunting easily him easily goaded man in football don't it, goad him so this led to a melee a melee or a melee uh, no I like it a melee sure a, a fracas um, as Mourinho um, sort of like the lady doth protest too much pulled a face of absolute like the world is against me jumped up out of his seat obviously knowing full well he would be held back by his own staff security and Chelsea staff and yeah he just sort of like paraded down the cor- down the, um, the tunnel um, so this was obviously a huge end to the game very dramatic yeah, Mourinho big fight fight yeah. on the bench great great story and then there was another incident after that where the Chelsea fans decided to respond to this uh, fracas by waves of chanting of F off Mourinho. Sure. Um, and so then he walked around clapping the Man United fans, but also then all the fans behind the area where he used to, where he won three Premier League titles. Yeah. Those fans in particular, obviously he used to celebrate them with them back in the day. Yeah. He stood in front of them, flipping them three fingers. Uh, as if to say, I won you three league titles. His three defiant fingers aloft. Yeah. yeah. So, like, it's a sort of tragic cycle through his relationship with the Chelsea fans. What fan, a classic worldy moment, Carl. Yeah, I mean, even if they are telling him to F off, they'll always remember that moment when he hid in the laundry basket. Welcome to the Absolute Worldy Football Bulletin. What you need to know this week to fill those football-shaped holes in your repertoire. UEFA Nations League update. England shocked the Spanish in Seville, beating them 3-2. The first time the Spanish had lost at home since 2003. The first time they conceded three goals in the first half of a competitive match ever and Raheem Sterling scoring twice for England, ending a 27-game dry spell over three years. Jadon Sancho was the only of our new Cubs to feature coming on for the final moments of the 0-0 draw with Croatia. In doing so, he became the first outfield player to play for England whilst playing his club football overseas since David Beckham played for LA Galaxy almost a decade ago. Germany's shocking 2018 continues. They lost 2-1 to France and have lost six games in a calendar year for the first time in their history. And three cheers for Gibraltar. 
They've only been allowed to play competitively since 2013, and it's taking them until last week to win a game after 22 straight losses and 103 goals conceded. And then they go and win two in a row against Armenia and Liechtenstein. It's like buses. Buses full of the famous Barbary apes? No. Anyway, this puts them in a great position to actually qualify for the Euros via the UEFA Nations League and is officially why the Nations League continues to be fun, fun, fun. Latest update on Vegan FC, Forest Green Rovers' 12-game unbeaten run came to an end last week, losing to Walter Tull of this parish's Northampton 2-1. There are now no unbeaten teams left in the Football League and only three left in the Premier League. Will there be a team of invincibles this season? We don't think so. And finally, thousands of people have signed an online petition for Harry Maguire to be the face on the new £50 note. Even his England teammate Kyle Walker has signed it, stating, A bigger amount needs a bigger head. And that was this week's Absolute Worldly Football Bulletin. What you need to know to fill this week's holes in your football-shaped repertoire. So, Kyle, it now falls to me to do this week's Worldy. And, um... Uh, we've got into a bit of a habit here where you do something really uh, silly and fun and I do something serious and I'm not going to change that. Oh. Uh, so as we sit here, Kyle, two teams who once graced the Premiership played out an extremely exciting game just last night uh, that ended in a 4-2 away win. One of those teams is bottom of League One, the other is eighth in League One. Can you name those teams? League One, third tier of football. The third tier of English football. Both played in the Premier League. Both played, both graced the Premier League at points. What, I mean, I often ask myself this question because it's like the sort of new start of football history. What was the first Premier League season, 92-93 or 91-92? 92-93. Okay. Mm, Okay, League One, there's loads. It's Wigan and Coventry. Coventry are the team in eighth. Oldham. No, it's Bradford City. Bradford. Bradford lost 4-2 at home to Coventry, leaving them bottom of League One. But it is actually... Coventry City that I want to talk about as this week's Worldie, because just this past Friday, in this week's Worldie moment, Coventry City owners, Sisu, who are a hedge fund, have been refused permission to appeal the decision of top judges not to allow a judicial review into the sale of the Rico Arena, which is Coventry City's stadium. Hang on, hang on. They, they've been... They've... So they want a judicial review into the sale of the, of the stadium. Who I'm... does Sisu do? Yes. I will cover more in depth as okay. to what that I'll goes into go. in momentarily. Basically, it all boils down to the sale of the stadium uh, to Wasps Rugby Club in 2014. Mm-hmm. Uh, the council sold the stadium. It's Coventry City Council. Uh, and Sisu say the Rico Stadium was undervalued by around 30 million. The deal saw the rugby club granted a 250-year lease on the stadium, which lawyers for Sisu had been arguing, greatly increased uh, uh, the value. And they said this meant that they'd been disadvantaged in uh, buying the Rico on similar terms, and then they couldn't buy the Rico on similar terms. And so they fought for a judicial judicial review so they could appeal against Coventry City City Council's decision to sell the stadium. Council leaders have previously previously said to Sisu, please stop playing Russian roulette with the club's future. Let's end this long-running legal battle. It sounds like Coventry City Council have an issue with Sisu. Yes, Issue with Sisu. Issue with Sisu. (laughs) They do have an issue with Sisu, Kyle, and that is why this week's Worldie is going to lead me to talking about the current state of Coventry City Football Club. The Sky Blues. The Sky Blues. So it's not, it's one thing, Kyle, for us to sit here and look back 31 years to Coventry City winning the FA Cup in their greatest moment against Spurs in 1987, and we could despair at the fact that eighth in League One and their owners have just taken their council to court for the umpteenth time. That's one thing. We could despair at that. But instead, let's just look back 11 years, shall we? 
to the 2007-8 season, when Coventry City were competing in the cha- championship, mm-hmm. they were averaging 20,000 people uh, uh, crowd in the crowd at the Rico Arena. And for the last home game of that season, they drew 28,000 people. They stayed up that year, but only just. 2007-2008. And flash forward to now, and they are powerless tenants in their own city, which at least is less awful than the time they spent playing their home games in exile 30 miles away in Northampton. Yeah. Last season, they were in League Two for the first time in the fourth tier since the 1950s. And the only way that things could have got much worse for them is if they were liquida- liquidated. Although, perhaps fortunately, the club is not thought to be worth liquidating in its current form. Then they don't have any assets. They have no assets. So what's happened, Kyle? I want to know what happened with their stadium. Because when we were younger, they played, I think, at Highfield Road. Highfield Road. Uh, until the council built them a stadium. Oh, that's nice of them. Yes. Well, look, let's go... Let, tell you what, let's go back to December 2007 to start off with. Because that, that, will, that will explain something what's happened with the Rico and why, it's, why Coventry City are in such bad state now. Okay. So in December 2007, 90% of Coventry City was sold to Sisu Capital, who are a hedge fund. Uh, this is the f- height of like pre-financial crash arrogance. People are splurging money around, and they believed, Sisu that is, that this would be the beginning of getting Coventry into the Premier League, at which point there'd be loads of investment, they'd be able to sell it abroad to some business, you know, to a billionaire. Um, so at this point begins a catalogue of errors, Kyle, and some of them are brilliant. So they appointed a Nigerian commodity broker, Onye Igwe, uh-huh. to run the club, Although he had his own ideas about what this might involve. Um, so he brought in a Canadian digital guru named Leonard Brody, who suggested, and this is true, that the club could raise money by getting fans to text advice on substitutions to a premium rate number during the game. Oh my God. That is one of their first uh, ideas, big this ideas. This is an idea that you have if you're a club that plays non-league football. Yeah. Like, we need to raise £200 to pay for the hole in the roof of the football club. Yep. Let's, let's let's come up with another way. Not a club that has 30,000... 30,000 fans coming to the stadium to watch the team who are... Uh, the owners are saying they're going to get into the Premier League and they're, uh, they're being encouraged to text a premium rate number with substitution suggestions during the game. It's extraordinary. I mean, if, if there was an actual voting X-Factor system in which that player would then go on, I'd be for that. Yeah, sure, why not? But there, there obviously isn't. No, it's, it's a scam. Complete, it's complete scam. It's just a way of making money. Uh, they also plan to get fans to buy replica shirts two sizes so too big so that they would be able to wear them over their coats in cold weather, and that would make the shirt sponsorship deal more attractive. What? So during the summer months, they would wear shirts that fit, and during the winter months, they would wear them over their tops, because obviously the only reason that anyone's buying a shirt is to get a better shirt sponsor. I mean, as you can see, listeners, very early on in these people buying this football club, there's some real interesting deals at play uh, to do with financial mismanagement. To do with financial uh, mismanagement... I'm, you know, for those of us who aren't up to par with a hedge fund, is that just a group of nameless people that, that that can just go under the name of the hedge fund? And how does that work? Yes. So Coventry was only ever one of a slightly haphazard collection of investments from CSU's private equity fund. Okay. So they have private equity, so they can pretty much put it into anything. Uh, if you do a little online search, you can find some of the things that they were investing in at the time. Gantois, a French fabricated metal firm. Arino Tech, a German air conditioner manufacturer. They had a French designer eyewear manufacturer that was a shoe shop in Paris. But the majority of the other investments also went the same way as the football club and resulted in the loss of tens of millions of pounds. Okay. So basically, there was a portfolio 
assembled, including Coventry City. They were just an asset. Yeah. And millions of pounds were put into these uh, different things in the hope that they could then sell the ventures later down the line for big profit. So, Coventry City, a football team, as you and I both know, and as our listeners are aware, there's too much money in football, but if you want to make money in football, you have to spend money in football. Oh, yeah. So, if Coventry City were to get into the Premier League back then... They needed players, right? Yeah, investment in the playing squad. Unless you've got a very good academy, which they, they have been famed for. But they only just struggled to stay up in 2007-8. So flash forward three years and A.D. Boothroyd is in charge. Mm-hmm. Big fan of A.D. Boothroyd you are, aren't you? He's the un- England under-21 manager now. He's bringing yeah. through the next young Cubs. Ah! Yeah, indeed. Uh, so in December 2010, A.D. Boothroyd's team were fifth in the championship in December 2010, Kyle. That is so recent. Is it? It's- it's eight years. They were yeah, fifth in the championship. Yeah, down from there. Uh, Cesar advised, with a bit of smart investment, right, right players, promotion. Cesar said no, they'd be tightening the belt instead, and they sacked Boothroyd in March 2011. The core of the team left that summer, and they were relegated the next season. Oh, so close. So the following year, Igwe, uh, he was finally He's removed. still there. Oh, he was there the whole time. Uh, still with his premium numbers and big big tops. Uh, so finally he was removed and uh, a head, uh, the hedge fund arm of Sisu, so we've been, gone from the equity arm of Sisu to the hedge fund arm of Sisu, took over. Uh, and uh, someone called Joy Sapala, she took over. Um, That's good, more women in football. Sure, she took, and she appointed someone called Tim Fisher to run the club. Cheers, Tim. Sapala was just a, a, a distressed debt specialist. So she was, you know, she was good at um, buying up debts. And then wiping them out and selling on uh, the thing that she'd bought out. Okay. But that, that can work, right? That you do want it to be debtless and you do then want to sell it. Yeah, but what they do is they throw good money after bad. So they try and recoup their losses even whilst the team play badly. Oh, I So see. they go down the league and they just don't spend any money. Yeah. So it, it doesn't make any sense. Not uh, when you're running a competitive sport company. Yeah, and I've got yeah. a quote from a senior club figure, which is really good. An ex, ex-senior club figure. Trying to negotiate with Sisu is like trying to have a constructive argument with a drunk in a bar. <laughs> nice. Nice. <laughs> Evocative. So here we go. This is, this is the point we're, that I'm uh, mostly here to talk about. The, the notorious fact that Sisu somehow managed to bungle their way out of Country City playing in their own home stadium. After the Rico was a purpose-built stadium by Coventry City Council, the company that ran the Rico was joint-owned by Coventry Council and a charity called the Alan Higgs Trust. But there was a plan in place for Sisu to buy half of it eventually and then do a deal for the rest of the shares. Instead, Sisu apparently tried to, pay, to play the council and the Higgs Trust off against each other. They withheld the rent and took the stadium company to court. Even though the club had an offer from a fan to pay the rent at the Rico for them, Sisu turned that down. So this is the start of 10 years of court cases, uh, which eventually led to Wasps taking over, Wasps, the rugby team. But they're from London. Yep, they now play their their rugby in Coventry at the Rico Arena. Are they still called the London Wasps? I believe they've lost the term London from their name. That would make sense. And they now play their rugby at the Rico Arena, which they sell out every single week. Yeah, it's a big stadium. Yep. Uh, and, uh, of course, as you and I both know, but our listeners may not be aware, during that time when Wasps took over the stadium and CC were withholding the rent and turning down fan offers to pay the rent for them, they moved the team 30 miles away to Northampton mm-hmm. to play their home games. Extraordinary. So, basically, uh, they're back at the Rico. Uh, now they're back. They're now, they're now they're back, momentarily. Um, uh, but the general idea is that as, as long as this hedge fund who have mismanaged the club into the point where they're now potentially going to lose the stadium 
are in charge. The atmosphere is never going to be positive again. The crowd is now down to about 10,000. Yes, yeah, Although loss. last year when they were in um, uh, League Two, it was about 7,000 every game. Uh, a guy called Moz Baker said last year, he's the chair of the influential Sky Blue Trust. He said the atmosphere is pretty deathly. They have a 32,000 stadium with around 7,000 people at most for most games. People who used to go no longer go. There's a diehard element of really trying to get an atmosphere going, but it's difficult to do so. People go out of duty and loyalty rather than any pleasure. This is how we started this whole podcast, talking about why people get sucked into football obsession. Why do people get sucked into football obsession? There are 7,000 diehard Coventry City fans that were going week in, week out last season. A few more have come back now they've been promoted to League One. But it's, it's 11,000 people in a 32,000 stadium. It's impossible to run a successful football team in this environment. Sisu have long ago stopped investing in the players' playing staff. And luckily for them, they have an exceptional academy under the management of uh, academy manager Richard Stevens. They produce extraordinary players. And with these players, they plug the losses that the club is making. Well, we talked about one last week, James Madison. They got £3 million for Madison in 2016 when he went to Norwich. And they got a, a percentage of the £22 million fee when he joined Leicester and the summer. They got £500,000 for George Thomas last year and they got a large undisclosed sum from Reading for promotion hero Mark McNulty this summer. Oh yeah, he scored lots of goals last season. Exactly, because this is the extraordinary thing, Kyle. The picture on the pitch is not negative. They're on the up. They won the League 2 playoff final against Exeter last year and were promoted to League 1 and under the management of Mark Robbins, as I said, having beaten Bradford last night, they're 8th. But they're staring at the very real possibility after this latest court case on Friday of having no stadium to play in. They're not going to go back to Northampton. It's too small. Although not for 7,000, but for more. Where are they going to go? Well, ultimately, the Coventry fans have no optimism for any future under this ownership. So until until there's new ownership who who are willing to negotiate with Wasps and the City Council and not continually take them to court... There's a genuine chance that they won't have anywhere to play, so nobody knows. There's a consortium of fans who are keen to buy the club. They're led by a guy called Gary Hoffman, who was a former vice chairman, and he's a CEO of of the insurers Hastings. I've Uh, heard of them. Yeah, they've got that statue of a man in the rain. There you go. Well, their consortium offered four offers, have submitted four offers to Sisu, the most recent being in November 2017, so November last year, for an initial 7 million, potentially rising as high as 20 million. But there's no success. Sisu just turn it down. So they've said, we're a rock-solid consortium of local businessmen who are lifelong fans. We're not into it to try and make money. We have a plan to get the club back to the championship. I'm not going to publicly criticise Sisu, but of course we should not be where we are. Now, estimates vary on how much money Sisu have lost to Coventry, which is why they're so resistant. Yeah, because they, they're basically thinking, through luck or chance, we have a good run we get into the Premier League without investment, we'll be able to sell that club and get all of our money back. Sure, but then people are saying that they lost between 60 and 70 million pounds. Yeah, but a Premier League club years. is worth that. Sure, but and they want 20 million pounds up front to sell the club. Yeah. Plus covering of all the debt. Yeah, yeah. But the club has no assets. They don't have a stadium. They have a playing squad that they sell every summer and then bring through academy products. They own nothing. They don't own their training ground. They don't own anything. Now, just uh, to look at it this way, Portsmouth FC who have suffered similarly and fallen from the Premier League Mm -hmm. all the way down to League One. They're currently top of League One. They're a similar size. They were bought last year, and they own their own stadium, lest we forget, Fratton Park. They were sold last year to the former Disney chief executive, Michael Eisner, for 5.6 million. Mm -hmm. So Sisu are valuing the club at roughly four four times as much as they should. 
and Portsmouth own their own stadium. Yeah. So there's very little the Coventry fans or the consortium can do to force Sisu to sell. Sisu have shown they're not averse to cutting off their nose to spite their face. So any deal at this point, we'll have to see. We'll have to wait to see what Sisu decides to do now that their final court case has been thrown out. Well, it's a toxic circle, isn't it? They they anticipate that because they have this die-hard fan base, that they're an attractive prospect. If, you, if whoever's going to buy this club are going to do so because they're a, a traditional football name and look at the support. You know, for the listeners who don't know, in the fourth division, your average gate per game of attendance is going to be 2,000 tops, mm. maybe lower. And they were getting, and getting seven. seven. So they obviously, they're a big club. They're a, sh- a sleeping di- a giant. Yeah. And they're, they are, they're kind of hedging their bets. Uh, that they're, nice. That, um, that due to that uh, history, someone's going to pay them over the odds. But let's tie this back into what we were discussing earlier in terms of passion, in terms of people caring. And you can have your own opinion, listener, on why people care about football and whether they should or not. But fundamentally, people do. And this is a club with an amazing history. As I said, they won the FA Cup in 1987. They were one of the longest running teams not to get relegated uh, for years and years and years and years. And they are being run into the ground to the point where eighth in League One, if they keep up the current form, they could be in the playoffs to get to the championship next season. And there's a very real possibility that those fans of Coventry City who are starting to come back, there's, they've already put on 4,000 from the fan base. At Wembley last year, they dwarfed the Exeter City uh, support who turned up for the final. That, that There's a very real possibility they won't have a stadium. So you're looking at the situation then, you're going, well, what the hell's going to happen? I, I can't think of a time in... In our lifetime, certainly, where a football club has had to fold because they've got nowhere to play. I think Brighton came close. Brighton came very close with uh, the old Goldstone ground. Uh, um, Bournemouth, were, Bournemouth were one game away from f- slipping out of the Football League and going into liquidation. They won, they stayed up. Um, and now look at them. So what you're saying is there's a chance here. But it, I mean, yeah. it's just, I think for Coventry City fans, they've just given up. They, they have weekly protests. They've pr- protested against the board for years. Um, and the other thing is, who wants to watch a team when every single year you sell all your best players? You sell your best players, you don't have a home, you don't... If you're, a Covent, if you're from Coventry and you're a young kid, you, what, and there's, an, there's all those other teams in the local area to support West Brom, Villa, Birmingham. Why would you support Coventry? When they don't have a ground. But also, what's going to happen? And you can't drive. If you, how are you going to get to the Rico that they might not even be going to play in for much longer if you can't drive? It's on, it's on a motorway. I encourage our listeners to read the article by David Conn in The Guardian, uh, which details more about the court cases in specific. But I genuinely feel like this week's worldly moment is about everything that's wrong with football for me at the moment, which is there is so much passion and love for your local team still. And yet the way that the finances have played out means that people like Sisu can be involved in football and they have run a club who have a great history into a situation where they may genuinely have to fold if they don't have anywhere to play. You can't not have a stadium. And if, if their solution is going to be to play 30 miles away in Northampton again, as they did a couple of years ago, when this, uh, uh, the last time that Coventry were unable to play at the stadium, uh, then they're going to lose their entire fan base. And, and it will feel like every home game is an away game and they may well slide back down the football pyramid. So I wonder, Carl, if our listeners noticed something new this week. I hope they would have noticed our Absolute Worldy Football Bulletin. Do you want to say a little bit about what the Absolute Worldy Football Bulletin is? I just think it's a nice little kind of uh, collection of little facts for people that they then might want to regurgitate or they might have 
picked up on and then they can contribute to rather than feeling like football chat is not for them. Now they've got some um, ammo. Some, some nuggets, if you will. Almost like Putin Pravda points. Back in the day, exactly what I thought. Like, you know, every week some little points for you to take to work. Or, or the pub. Or the pub. Or just, you know, for a night, you know, whenever. Or surprise someone. Or for your dad. Yeah, I'll be so, I'll be using all of those points for my dad and he'll just moan about them. Some so. peak dad chat there peak for you. Peak dad chat. Uh, so, what a lovely episode. I've really enjoyed it. It yeah. felt very old school, very echoey. A bit echoey and also uh, not having a guest is, 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 we've got so used to that, but I've enjoyed it. Yeah, I mean, we will be back next time, listeners, with a guest for you when we will be getting ahead of Classic Worldies. We'll be getting ahead of this week's Worldie, and as it's a new item, we will also be getting ahead of the Absolute Worldie Football Bulletin. Wowzers, all those things. All those things. I can't wait. I can't wait either. I'll see you then, Carl. See you then. I might see you before then, Joe, but I'll see you guys then. (laughs) (laughs) Bye. That was the Absolute Worldie Football Podcast by Joel Samuels and Kyle Ross. The theme music was courtesy of Adam Janota-Bazowski and Amachada Patel. All other music is licensed by Creative Commons. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to rate, review, share, and subscribe. And follow us on Twitter at at Podcast. Goodbye. I think it's Swindon. Well, don't preempt the guest before we've started the bit. Okay. Okay.